excited to have Liz Tarquin on the show. One thing we want to do on this podcast is showcase how a variety of careers can make a positive impact on our oceans. Liz Tarquin is an amazing team leader with nearly three decades of experience delivering science meets IT solutions to government and industry. She's worked with a variety of organizations, including the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Defense, National Institutes of Health, as well as government agencies in her other home country of New Zealand. And because she's a wonderful person, she also works closely with nonprofits and non-government entities to help them meet their resource needs, provide unique opportunities for employees to add value to local communities, support science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, also known as STEM, and increase diversity and inclusion in the marine, ocean, and coastal science field. Uh, currently, Liz is the CEO of Climate Arts and Science Experts, CASE for short, and that is a SBA-certified woman-owned HUBZone small business focused on creating impactful climate-centric science and information that helps clients improve and sustain the health and well-being of our planet and its inhabitants. And they do this by providing credible and globally recognized climate and environmental science and technology expertise, which enables organizations in the public and private sector to make environmentally intelligent decisions, anticipate and solve problems, and create lasting economic, social, and ecosystem resilience. And in my mind, those three things economic, social, and ecosystem resilience, they're like the three legs of a stool. If you don't have one, the stool doesn't work, right? You sit on it and you topple over. Um, and so I would love to start by chatting about your, your work at CASE and what it is a day looks like for you, what it is you really are trying to do at this place and the mission, um, one sentence on the website that really stood out to me was it said that case connects science to solutions and i find that to be really critical because a lot of times we know what we need to do in theory but it doesn't always get implemented well or we don't figure out how to use that information uh so i'm gonna just let you tell me about that wonderful work <laughs> Yeah, well, um, so thanks for that introduction. Yeah, it's, um, it's a whole huge mouthful of stuff that we do. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, really, you know, it's fundamental that we, we do look for ways in which we can add value using science to help people to live better lives and also help our living resources to keep on living. Um, and so, you know, I mean, sounds quite simple, but, you know, when you start, start to kind of peel away the onion, there's lots and lots of opinions, of course, and lots of ways of doing that. Um, and for me personally, um, I like to look at ways which we can deliver better science uh, through use of technologies. And as technology is very broad, and of course, um, you know, in today's day and age, um, there's so many different ways we can collect data, aggregate data, ingest data, make it available to people. Um, and you mostly, you know, make sure that that data is really reliable so people can make fundamental decisions that can save lives or just improve them. You said that you often work with a lot of opinions and, you know, there are so many different worldviews of 
you know, our natural resources. Some people don't even like that word. Uh, so what is, how do you navigate that when you have multiple opinions or worldviews that have different, essentially like values of biology and of the things that are alive besides people? Well, I mean, you can imagine um, it's a bit like Scylla and Charybdis um, because as you pointed out earlier, you know, you've got the economic fighting the social sometimes, and then also, um, you know, the, the political enters the, the stage. Um, I think one of the things that I think is, is, you know, I strive for is try to create win-wins for everybody, even though each party maybe doesn't get all the, what they're asking for, at least everybody gets some. And sometimes it's successful and sometimes it isn't. Um, and so we've got, always got to kind of weigh in the factors is, you know, what everybody's got a different opinion about what impact means and impacting livelihood at the expense of allowing a, a you know a, a living marine resource to disappear um short-term you know uh, gains or short-term decisions that have extremely long-term impact um you know that those are all the things that at least in our mind we try to bring them up to the surface so oftentimes people don't think of these different things they just think of what's immediately in front of them and um you know make that visceral decision based on immediacy rather than looking at, you know, well, hey, if, if I start to dump some things into the ocean, maybe today it disappears, but, you know, we might not have seagrass. And then later on, when we have a big storm, uh, you know, that lovely house I just built on the coastline is just going to get washed away because they don't have a natural barrier out there uh, because of a, a very really short-sighted or maybe even a decision that, that we didn't know because, you know, science is all about removing uncertainty. And you can look in through history about decisions that were made by human beings without huge amount of knowledge. And, you know, we suffer the consequences later. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was studying the history of environmental movements, you know, there used to be a slogan called the solution to pollution is dilution, which was advocating for dumping it in the ocean because we're too small to have any impact on something so big. Um, look at us now, the climate change and pollution, and, you know, we're, we were clearly mistaken. Um, but yeah, so what, what is, um, a typical client at case? Um, well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so, you know, just to give you an example, um, you know, we're working with a large engineering firm now in Canada that is, you know, has been doing large projects, uh, you know, building projects, construction of all different types, and suddenly now have got to think about climate and how that how climate change, how increasing temperatures, things evaporating in ways that didn't evaporate before because of those increasing temperatures um, are affecting buildings and affecting the basically the way that they're disposing of hazardous waste. So they've come asked us to come in and say, we'll sprinkle some climate things on this. We don't know what we're doing. So you know, that's a good example of a client that, um, you know, suddenly waking up to the impacts of climate change and A, needs to understand what that term even means, how climate variability and weather variability is going to affect their, their business and then have us help them write strategies into their plans to counteract the, the negative while also not you know, leaving the door completely shut on things that might positively impact their business. So that's a good example. We're also working with a municipality on the East Coast that is offshore of a, a planned offshore energy wind farm. And they have some legitimate concerns about, well, is it placed properly? You know, there's been a lot of 
federal got work done. There's been a lot of things in there. They're on the cusp of really starting to look at, well, we're going to start drilling into the water now. Um, and, you know, the, these, this, this municipality is, is quite concerned and wants to know, well, if it moved out five miles, what would happen? And we're looking at, well, you know, you're going to reroute vessel traffic. So that might run into some, you know, endangered or, or threatened species. That's, you know, that's particularly bad. But, you know, one of the things they're concerned about is, can I see the, 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 the farm from, my, from the shoreline? Well, I'm like, well, you might not be able to see the farm, but if they reroute all that commercial traffic, vessel traffic inland, you're just going to see barges. So which one is worse, a little tiny bit there or this? So, you know, they didn't think about those things. And so part of what we try to do is say, well, great, you know, you, you have, we have this plan. How is it, you, you know, if we change the, the plan, how's that going to affect you? Now, that doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on climate, but it does have a direct impact on living marine resources that could be in the way of all of this. Um, so, you know, those are two of our clients. And then we do quite a lot of work with the U.S. federal government. Uh, you mentioned NOAA. And we do work with all four lines of business. So NOAA is divided into weather service, which we all know very well because, you know, we see the forecast, um, ocean service, which protects our coastlines, and then fisheries, which protects our fishing, our fishing industry, as well as protected species. So we do a lot of work around in, in all of those areas, pulling information down from satellites to produce products that then can be used by different types of people to make decisions. Um, as well as directly working with stakeholders who are, are basically threatened by either sea level rise or rising temperatures where, you know, fish are no longer where they used to be. Um, so that's, you know, those are, those are some typical clients. It's quite a mixture of, of different types of, of organizations we work with. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I mean, it sounds like with that kind of mixture, then you get to sort of get a really big picture of what's going on in, in terms of how these various industries and government agencies are thinking about the environment and the oceans and climate change. Um, do you get a lot of requests for not just meeting, you know, the required laws and regulations, but going beyond that and actually doing something, you know, ocean positive or climate positive? Um, well, yeah. So part of the 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 fun and and I guess more fulfilling part of what we do is, is looking at you know what's down the road, right? So, for instance, you know what what kind of data can we collect that then has a positive impact? Um, so, you know, I think it's I know for myself it's quite easy to go down the rabbit hole of negativity when it comes to climate change, <laughs> and everything is doom and gloom all the time. Um, but you know, with change comes great opportunity. Right. So there's such an explosion now of new technologies for data collection. I mean, some of it we will not agree with, for instance, using the use of drones. Um, but some of it's quite, you know, I mean, that, you know, in, in using drones or using, um, you know, un, you know, can't you call them uncrewed now, un, uncrewed autonomous vehicles, you know, we're actually able to prevent people from getting in harm's way. So we can send these UASs into places where we couldn't see before. And now we can learn more about our oceans um, and what's underneath the surface of the water, as well as what's on the surface of the water and what's flying in the sky. Um, and then we even now, you know, and I know like chat GPT and, and uh, artificial intelligence gets a lot of press these days, but you know, it's really opened up the doors for us to know even more because now we have the computing power to process all this just massive amounts of information that we're pulling out of satellites, you know, out of the ocean in terms of sound, acoustics, 
um, and mash them all together and, and get a much more interesting picture of what's happening. So, um, you know, on the one hand, we do a lot of that fighting of climate change and, you know, fighting is kind of possibly the wrong word to use, adjusting to, leaning into. But, you know, as we've seen in, in a lot of major things that happen, you know, to the planet that we get to be witness to, it also drives a lot of a lot of discovery as well as a lot of innovation. So, um, you know, to me, that's the most exciting part is looking at where can we start to combine technologies and, and science in, in more unique and, and fascinating ways to know more about our planet. Yeah, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, that was actually a big part of what I enjoyed studying in um, in school was that we have these essentially transdisciplinary problems and we need transdisciplinary solutions. You know, like how can we get people working together in all, all fields, not just different scientists together, but also like the sociologist and, you know, like, yep. and, and the mathematician, get them together and see what happens. Um, it's fantastic that people have been able to specialize so much because we do get a lot of really important details that can change an entire project. But I think sometimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds. And like you said, with these new AI, um, the computing power of understanding all of these details we have is going to be dramatically increased, I think, for our benefit in the benefit of non-human life. <laughs> Um, so you're a founder of case, correct? No, I'm or you're not. the CEO currently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So case, so I, I actually, uh, so the founder of case it's, it's, it, it actually touched my heart because this is what I would like to do for someone down the road. So the founder of case started the company about 10 years ago and she, this past year, so she's, she's been wanting to retire and she famously say that she's been, she's retired several times now. And this, this one might be the end one. Um, she was looking for someone, uh, a woman particularly, to be able to take over, you know, what she had started and kind of carry it forward. Um, and I really liked the notion. And she said, what I like to do is hand it over to you. And then I just want to be a little byline in the bottom, technical advisor, science advisor, and then someday you'll do the same thing. So um, I was really impressed by that because many people have a hard time when they start something, letting it go. But um, to me, that's what I like to do as soon as I get case to the point where I think I've added as much value as I can is find someone who can take it and keep on charging forward and then give me the little byline at the bottom of the screen. I, I love hearing stories of how people lifting each other up, especially in this type of work, you know, where it really what we're doing is for the benefit of the greater good. And I think that at least in American society, there's a lot of competition, you know, like I, it, it gets a little cutthroat in certain industries and remembering that we're all in this together and lifting each other up and making sure we find the best person to take over, you know, especially something we've built like a business, being able to let it go. That's, that's really big. Well, I also feel she's been a role model, you know, I mean, the reason that I'm in where I am today is because I've had strong women in, in the past who stood up and, and actually blazed trails in science, in technology, in a lot of different fields. And so, you know, the least I can do is hold, hold, up, hold up the torch for the next generation of women. So I think that's as important as anything else is, you know, we want to be equitable across the board, but sometimes it needs a little bit of help. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Um, 
So I wanted to ask you a bit more about your work at NOAA, since this is a very ocean-focused podcast. Um, what, you know, without sharing anything confidential, because it was government, what can you tell us about your experience there? And what was perhaps the moment or several moments where you felt like this is making a difference? This is making a really positive impact for the oceans? Well, that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> actually, funny enough, I, I come to science from like the, the most indirect path. Um, I actually have a business degree and I started my career in IT as a programmer. Um, but I had worked with a couple of different environmental companies as long as, as well as some others as, as clients. And about 10 years ago, I started working more exclusively with NOAA pretty much by happenstance. Um, I started, I got a job working for a company that, that gave me a contract with NOAA Fisheries and said, do something with this. I was like, okay. And I'll be quite honest, I didn't really know much difference between a cetacean and a crustacean. So my site <laughs> was very patient with me as I asked lots and lots of questions, but I just found a passion for it. And then that meandered into, you know, working with the different branches of NOAA, the ocean service and weather service and, and satellites as well. And I think um, I just naturally just have always liked the ocean and always liked fish and always liked these sorts of things, but never thought of it as a career until I had that opportunity. And, and so for me, it's, it's just constant learning. Um, you know, I, I feel like at this point, you know, I've, I've probably written and talked to enough people um, that it's, uh, you know, I've, I've learned a lot along the way. And I feel like I'm sort of equal opportunity when it comes to science, because I think it's all interesting. Um, but that gives me a really good advantage because I, you know, switch between salmon here and coral reefs there and all sorts of things. And, um, you know, my, my job has traditionally been to do a lot of the things that scientists don't want to do. Um, <laughs> but I get to be, I, you know, I, I don't mind doing the business side of it um, and mm -hmm. putting the nuts and bolts together as long as I can be around those folks who help me learn a little bit more about the planet. Um, so that's that's probably it's not as direct a way of answering your question, but um, you know I, I feel like I've very, been very lucky to have found this career path. But you asked me also about what I found was sort of most fulfilling, and um, in, in addition to working with the different scientists, last year I got to work on a project um, where we were helping NOAA Fisheries define their data acquisition strategy, um, and that was one of the rare times in which I got to combine the, my, my love of technology with science. So we met with quite a wide range of people, did you know, a number of different workshops, did some futuring, trying to get the scientists to think about like, well, zero to five years, what kinds of data are you collecting and what's out there? And then what does NOAA need to be um, investing in in order to collect that next layer of data in the five to 10 year range and the 10 plus year range? So we, we really got into a lot of science fiction. It was great, um, but it was also it was also pretty neat because like one of the things about NOAA fisheries, especially in, in ocean service as well, is you know, east and west coast quite different. You have different species, you have different problems, you have different things you're trying to to, to study, and so this was a chance to look at everything um, and try to come up with solutions that would encompass all, but also would be very regionally focused. So it was a it was a really really neat project, and I was really happy to be one of the, the the folks in the background who was trying to help the scientists to really think about what the future might hold. Um, and it was surprising because you know we had a number of people say, well, it can't be done. Like, well, if I could think it, it can be done. 
So it just, maybe not tomorrow. It's just, so yeah, that, that was, uh, you know, that, that's been one of the more fulfilling uh, projects that I've got to work on. That, yeah, that sounds, that sounds really fantastic. Um, so speaking of, of which you mentioned that, you know, this, you feel fortunate to have found this career path. And I was wondering if you have any career advice for people who are perhaps more in your field of like the business and the IT and the data, but they love the ocean and maybe they want to figure out how to combine their, their two, their skills with their passion and, and follow in your footsteps, so to speak. Well, you know, and I think, and I'm going to go back to your, 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 your three stools or your three, three legs of the stool or your three pillars. Um, I think, you know, for, for something like, like, don't be afraid of the science. Just like, you know, I found as a programmer, or as a person who started programming, I, I feel like programming is easy, but that's because it's something that I learned how to do. And that can be very formidable for somebody who's never like jumped into code. And I think the same thing about the sciences, you can get, you know, there's an infinite amount to know. So on the one hand, you can be overwhelmed on the end, on the other, also it's, it's can be very, it can be very competitive in its own way. But if you just genuinely go out there and you have a love for say the ocean or, you know, anything like that, then figure out how you can take what you know, what you're good at and how it complements and supplements the science part. Um, and so that's what I always looked at is like, you know, I, I, I joke with people cause I've, I've made a healthy living out of doing the things people don't like to do, <laughs> um, but you know, how is it the skills that I have or the things I've picked up along the way or the other things that I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good at how do they help push the science along? Um, and so I think that for anybody who has not had a, a science background and feels like, well, I can't possibly do that. Well, sure you can. You just. I mean, first of all, there's a YouTube video for everything. <laughs> Second of all, you know, um, don't be afraid to look at, you know, what are those needs that are not being met and what do you have that you can use to meet those needs? Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah, I mean, every everybody has something to contribute. So, so in all of your experience, what do you think is perhaps the most pressing ocean issue currently that people listening should know about? Well, you know, that's, that's a really big question. Um, my mind often goes to things like marine debris. Uh, I did get to work um, out in the, the Northwest Hawaiian Islands with a group that was a, no a nonprofit whose, you know, raison d'etre was to go out on, on, you know, periodically on surveys and pick up marine debris and basically see what's out there. And it was just astounding the amount that they were able to, to retrieve, knowing that that was such a mere fraction of what is floating in our oceans. And the most you know, detrimental stuff is the stuff we don't even see, the microparticles. So you know, I would tell people, like, to me, you know, solving that problem, um, which is probably unsolvable. You know, we, you, we started the podcast with the, you know, dilute it. <laughs> Yes, not an infinite, you know, infinite dilution, you know, thing. Um, you know, I think that's one of your more pressing. But I also see there's opportunity. There's lots of there's a number of people who are looking at retrieving the the debris, turning it into energy, um, looking at other ways in which we can filter the ocean, or or how can we, you know, make use of this uh, as opposed to just you know kind of creating a barrier and pushing it back. So, um, but you know, every time I I throw away a bottle, I think to myself, yep, there's some more marine debris. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, you know, that makes me think of, of your work at Case. It seems like a lot of what you're doing there is 
prevention, like preventing the problem from even being there in the first place because you're anticipating the issues. And for things like marine debris, I see that in, you know, the, I think there's, there's currently various plastic um, proposed regulations in the states, as well as the International Plastic Treaty that people are trying to sort out, um, you know, preventing it from existing in the first place, thus not making it to the ocean at all, uh, seems like a, a very good way to go. Also, not particularly practical. So, you know, one thing that I've noticed, uh, you know, I mean, most people don't even know when they're, they're doing something that is going to cause harm. And if you make it easy for people um, and you don't make it, you know, punitive, you tend to get people to actually pay attention, actually do what you want them to do. So I, I feel like we haven't actually solved the other side of the problem. If we ban plastics, I mean, great, but we still haven't pulled all the plastic out of the ocean yet. I don't think we should add more. And plastic is just one of many things we're sticking into our oceans. Um, so, you know, coming up with more clever ways in which human beings can recycle those things can, can be a little more conscious and, and not necessarily dump so much stuff into our seas and hope that it just disappears on us. Um, so you have you need behavior change. You need, you need, you need technology to catch up. Um, and you need to, to figure out ways in which it's we get people to to do things the right way without them knowing it. Oh yeah, and in in my mind that's what a effective like quote unquote plastic ban would be is that it's it's also, you know, essentially technology forcing and I've seen a lot of um a lot of plastic alternatives and I think the issue is just that because the current mainstream of fossil fuel plastic is so mainstream it's hard to get the other alternatives up and running like we used to use um hemp hemp rope on the tall ships like pirate ships because hemp is super durable and if we lost that rope or that net overboard it biodegrades and so like there's a huge huge alternative and if we're required to make less plastic, then we're going to start reaching for those alternatives more. And then that's what will be available in stores for people who then don't have to figure out how to recycle it properly. No, absolutely right. I mean, you know, one of the things I've been impressed with, and it was funny, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in New Zealand right now. If you go to the, if you go to the, first of all, New Zealand has banned plastic bags in their grocery stores. So you have to bring a, you know, a, a something else, right? And the, the, what they do offer is quite clever. I mean, they're, they're about to paper, but it's a very thin kind of paper. And you can, even, um, they've, they've engineered a paper where if I go buy fish, you know, normally a fish would be wrapped in plastic and, or something like that. Well, this paper has a self seal and it's got some, it's got a, a, a film on the inside, so it doesn't leak out, but it's hundred percent biodegradable. So here people have just gotten used to the fact when I buy fish, it's going to come in a paper bag. Um, right. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a good example of a, a good alternative that, you know, gets introduced into the marketplace and suddenly becomes just basically de facto, just like, you know, hemp rope um, was replaced by nylon. Now everyone does, uses nylon. Well, nylon's not the best thing for putting in the ocean. Right. <laughs> Going back to it and, you know, making it to where there isn't another alternate choice or, you know, people become more conscious of it and just accept that there's a new way of doing things. So, um, 
And that's going to require some good, some good, you know, understanding of what is and isn't biodegradable, but also, you know, a viable alternative for people that they'll feel like is good, a good substitute. Um, so, but I feel like there are enough people now recognizing that, and there are enough people, even the ones who were not necessarily, you know, um, thinking very hard about it, you know, are, are there's more acceptance I feel like in the marketplace for alternative solutions and more more demand. Um, so just like electric cars, just like our cell phones, just like everything else, change happens slowly, but it does happen. Um, and so we shouldn't stop. We we shouldn't stop trying. Yeah, absolutely. I um I've had a lot of discussions with people about about just that, that change happens slowly, but that's not a reason to stop meaningful work. It can be, it can be a challenge because you don't always have this tangible result, but it, it is happening. Um, mm -hmm. And so with that, I wanna thank you so much for coming on our show. Pleasure.